I want to start like this, actually. This is not, not part of the preparation. I love it when this happens, when God seems to sort of speak and coincide with some things. Um, I, I was reminded I had a really painful conversation not that long ago. Uh, by the way, I'm Tim. I've been here 100 years, and I'm married to Hills. Um, I had a really painful conversation with, with a guy my sort of age, you know, 35, um, <laughs> quite recently. And it was sad because he said, with no... I mean. A lot of regret, for sure, but not lots of emotion. I have wasted my whole life. This is somebody who had known something of God in his early days, completely gone wandering off the tracks, had decisively come back to a faith and to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and had begun that journey and was just looking back and going, oh, no. You know, I'm, I'm my sort of age, and I've wasted my life. Well, I was able to reassure him that God is incredible at restoring the years that the locusts have eaten, if you know that rather interesting phrase from the Bible. He's amazing at restoration, but I wasn't going to say, make him feel better. He was saying, I've wasted my life. And he said, and it's because I built on the wrong foundation. I was down there uh, as we were singing earlier, as we were worshipping earlier, and I felt God draw my attention to this building. I've been here 100 years, I know this building inside out, but I'm not a buildings kind of a guy. Church is people more than buildings. I don't even call it a church, don't ever call this a church, it's a building. And, but I was just, God drew my attention to it, and we've had some building work done on the roof and all of that stuff. I think next year is the 200th anniversary of this building. And it's, um, I don't know what you think of the building, but in, in its way, it's pretty impressive. Why is it standing? Why has it stood 200 years? Because it's built on a whacking great solid foundation, a good foundation, right? I'm thinking that over there because I think God is speaking to me. And Jamie then says, we're going to sing this song. You might find it hard. How does the first line go? I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And you may or may not have found yourself singing that or singing it with whatever level of conviction. And I just feel that uh, God is wanting to remind us of that. I believe that he wants to renew all of us, actually, in the foundations in his love and experience and, and awareness and conviction and understanding, a deepening of his love, which is the sure foundation on which the thing is built. Because I don't know a lot about buildings, but it's pretty obvious that foundations really matter. And I'm linking that, too, to this sense that we've got. Beautiful sense at the moment, isn't it? The, buildings, the, the room is kind of filling up. There's some new people at the tea. There's some new students here, new people. It's a newish term, if you think in terms. Most of us do. Some of you, quite a few of you, are new to the town or whatever. Um, we're arriving out of the pandemic, so a few new things feel like they're beginning to get going. With the, the, in this church building, yeah, the, the scaffolding's gone. There's a sense of new stuff happening. And... We're in a series at the moment which is utterly foundational and which speaks right into this. But I want to say, I believe that whatever else I say or don't say, God wants to shore up our foundations. And I know every metaphor and image has its limitations because the truth is he's always slightly redigging some of our foundations all through life. I've been on the road with the Lord a long time. He's still digging up bits of my foundations which are shaky because he wants the house of my life to, to, to be built firm and secure. But none of us here in the room want to find that at some point down the line, the house kind of wobbles and shakes and the cracks appear and we suddenly realize we've been building on the wrong thing. We've been building on all the things that the culture says that you should build on. Qualifications, intelligence, looks, other types of relationship, whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. The God who made us, loves us, calls us, 
says, build on this foundation. There's only one foundation, and it's the foundation of love. And in the Bible, it says the cornerstone, the chief bit of the foundation is Jesus Christ. And it is all about him. If you're hoping to find sophisticated messages in, the, uh, in this church building, you'll be a bit disappointed probably. But I hope you'll find ones with depth and reality. And we're in this series uh, around calling. And uh, forgive me if you've been around the church long enough to have heard this story before. I have told it a few years ago. When I was four years old. Um, my mother took me to the zoo with a friend of hers and her small child. And I was four years old, and there was a particular moment, which I remember, and I'm standing here, and she's standing there, and she says, Timothy, come here. And I knew that I was in trouble when my mother called me Timothy. You kind of know that, right? She calls you that name with that look. And, uh, and I didn't. I wasn't particularly rebellious. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't. I didn't come here. She was there. She said, Timothy, come here. Second time, didn't move. Third time, she says, Timothy, come here. And instead of moving towards her, I moved back. And I tripped over quite a low wire, and I fell into the sea lion pond. Health and safety go mad these days, but hey. And um, my mother was uh, eight months pregnant with my sister, and her friend was about six months pregnant. And they looked at each other, who's the less pregnant? It was my mother's friend. So she was the one who had to jump in and save me from a a fishy end. And uh, it could have been pretty disastrous. Its only benefit, as far as I can see, is it's given me a story to tell over the years. But there's something about an authority figure, in this case my mother, who loved me, who could see an awful lot more about what was going on than I could, and out of her love, invited me, told me, commanded me, gave me some instruction to do something, and I had a choice in that moment whether to do it or not to do it. I didn't do it, and the consequences weren't weren't great. So what if, friends, almighty God whose hands put stars into space, who set the planet spinning, who created all life and is the author of it, including you, who knows you, who loves you, who's seen you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. Almighty God, what if he who knows and sees and loves that authority figure, what if he sees beyond you, wider, deeper, higher, and invites you to do something, speaks to you, says something, wants to relate to you, but gives you the choice to give it a yes or a no. What about that? Where do you stand with that right now? What kind of foundation are we building? Is it the foundation of love that is Jesus Christ and that is response to his call? We're in this, this is actually the final session. There have been two or three Sundays on this, and I invite you to head back to the previous messages. I'm not going to really summarize them beyond saying that um, a couple of weeks ago, I think I stood here, I don't know what you've done wrong to deserve me, an extra dose of me again so, you know, so soon, but I think it was a couple of weeks I stood here talking about God's first call. The Father's first call is always to himself. We're so wired to achieve stuff. We're so wired to think of things in terms of doing things and achieving things. No, God's first call is always to himself. It's into relationship with himself, to know him. Jesus says, this is life. Remember that? That they would... Know you, God, and Jesus whom you sent. So that was a couple of weeks ago, the first call to himself. Last week, Hills was speaking, um, and Heli was speaking, and uh, actually Andrew was rather on this theme again this morning, that it flows from that, that of course God has got interesting things for us to do. Some of that is general. Some of it is what Hills called the logos calling of God. It's the, the stuff which is generally true. If you know your Bibles, it's around, you know, love people, love God, love people, um, 
you know, uh, help to make followers of Jesus, point people towards Jesus. Don't kill people. Um, yeah, there's some Ten Commandments in there. There's some great commitment. There's a whole bunch of stuff which applies to all of us all of the time. That's the general calling of God, the will of God. But then there are some specific assignments, aren't there? What we might call rhema assignments, specific, unique to us for particular periods in time uh, of our lives. And it may, may relate to, to jobs or it might not. I've got a calling to be a husband. I've got a calling to be a father. That's some of the most significant callings, assignments, if you like, that I've got. And so have you. And you could maybe name some of them. So it follows from that that one of the top priorities in this relationship, God calling us to himself, is that we'd listen to him well, doesn't it? It's that we'd hear him well, that we'd learn to do that. Again, Andrew and Hill spoke quite a lot about that. And we need the Eli's in our life who help Samuel to hear God. We need all sorts of ways to, to help. It's a learning process. It doesn't just happen, don't God speak to me, oh great, off I go. It's not a transaction, it's a relationship. Relationships take time. We need to become familiar with God's voice and so on. And so all of that really, really matters. The focus just tonight briefly, and I'm not going to dwell, I'm going to chuck out four headlines and I'll use about a quarter of my prep. And, um, but, but it's this following God's call, that's the title I've been given, following God's call. Okay, so God calls us to himself into relationship, starting point there. He calls us to do some things. We might hear, yeah, I, th- I think God's calling me to do this. I think God's you know, put me in this kind of role. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a friend. That's a great calling. It's a great assignment. Um, I'm a student at this period of time. I'm, uh, I'm an accountant. I'm in this kind of work. I've got this, this kind of relation, those sorts of things. Fine, but then what? What does it mean to do that, to live that out, to follow God's call? John 14, going to read a few verses from that. And it's going to be a bit uncomfortable, friends, uh, just to warn you. Um, but God is never after our comfort. We need to hear that. He's compassionate. But if he was only ever after our comfort, we'd we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? What parent is only ever after the comfort of their kids? John 14, verse 15, Jesus speaking, begins like this. If you love me, keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you anticipating Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to skip a bit. 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who doesn't love me won't obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Just a little bit more, a couple more verses. All this I've said while I'm still with you, but the Advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. What a beautiful promise that is, especially to a bunch of fragile, vulnerable, scared people like them and us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I love he says, not as the world uh, gives. I think that's so, so important. I could get distracted at this point, but it seems to me that one of our massive tasks as those who say that we follow Jesus, if that's, 
how you would describe yourself. Maybe some of you are still kind of investigating. You wouldn't say that of yourselves, and that's totally cool. But those of us who do, one of our huge tasks then is to separate out what the culture says and what God's kingdom culture says, what United Kingdom says, what God says. And they're, they're almost poles apart most of the time. So this isn't the peace I give you, not the, not the kind of peace that the world will talk about and so on. So four things I notice here then. In this incredible passage, as Jesus says, these last things to his friends, the last things you say tend to be the most important. And there's no messing straight in there. Do you notice? It's pretty uncomfortable. Learning to follow him, he says. Being with him. Doing the with God life, if you're around a couple of weeks ago. He calls us to that. The with God life. Learning to trust him. Learning to respond to his will and to his ways. Learning to love him means what? Obeying him. Uh Uh-uh. Nasty word klaxon goes off. Not that word. Not the obedience word. Not obey. Surely not. And again, could get sidetracked, won't. But just let's notice there's some words that have this effect. Bible words. And I want to encourage us as a church family to be in the business of not ducking them and not diluting them, and not downgrading them, and not going to the message version of the Bible because it's just a little bit more palatable and it makes me feel a little bit okay because it takes those nasty words and makes them a bit different. Do what I say. Sounds a bit nicer than obey my commands. They're the same thing. And we could say the same about a bunch of other words like sin and whatever. Now, don't get me wrong. Occasionally, it's really important to to take a word and and reframe it, redefine it. Fee's word was really great. I believe that applies to tonight. There's something about redefining obedience in the way that we understand it that doesn't carry the toxic overtones of the culture, that doesn't carry the toxic overtones of authoritarianism and and people making you do things that you don't want to do and coming from a place of duty and obligation, all that stuff. But it's a Bible word, not more than that. It's a Jesus word. If you love me, you'll obey me. Love has got to look like something, he's saying. Three times he says it in those verses I've just read. Verse 5, verse 21, verse 23. I won't read them again. Check it out later. Love has to look like something. Not the Netflix version, not the YouTube version, not the kingdom culture version of love, which is all about feelings, and when you don't feel it, you don't love anymore. Not that version. The Jesus version. Love's got to look like something. There was a a brilliant vineyard, old vineyard um, pastor, preacher, who used to come through here on his way to Eastern Europe back in a few years ago. And he had a big sort of ministry in Eastern Europe and so on. He'd stand here in this place. Ken Blue was his name. Some of you might remember him. And he would go, he's a very dry, kind of caustic guy, brilliant, brilliant teacher. But he would go, don't tell me you love me. Just give me some money. Because <laughs> love's got to look like something. He needed a bunch of money to go off and help some people and plant churches in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. So we'd give him a shed load of money and, and tell him that we loved him. Love has to look like something. Jesus says, These people, referring to a bunch of people, they honor me with their lips, sing all the right songs, make all the right noises, make all the right declarations, but their hearts are far from me. Ouch. Don't just say you love. Love's got to look like something. Well, what does Jesus say that love's got to look like? Answer, obedience. Obeying him, doing what he says. Be careful. Klaxon warnings going off. He's not saying, obey me and then you'll experience my love. Obey me and then I'll love you. None of that. Not obedience in order to get something. Not, 
You've got to be perfect. The standard's 100%, and if you don't make it, you failed. Of course he's not saying that. But there's an inclination of the heart, isn't there? There's an inclination of the will and the conviction and the desire. And we know what that's like, to move towards something. To, and he's saying that is the inclination that I'm after. Not, and feel useless when you fail, feel condemned, feel shame, feel all that when you, when you mess up. That's not what he's saying. But yes, there's an outworking of knowing me. There's an outworking of being called into relationship. There's an outworking of knowing my love and responding to it that will express itself as going my way, doing what I say, following the path I've got for you. And by the way, it's a narrow path. I think two things happen. Again, won't dwell on these, mentioned them before, but... I think we can take this word obedience and we can go one of two directions. And the, and the, and the problem with both of these two things is we, is we separate the obedience from the love and we try and make them different things. The minute you do that, we're in trouble. Jesus puts them together. And when we separate stuff, we're in, we're in problems. Lots of times that happens in Scripture. It happens here if we separate them out and we go, oh, the obedience thing, the, the legalistic thing, I would call it, the religious parrot on my shoulder type of thing, that overstresses the obedience at the expense of the loving relationship. So it becomes all about duty and obligation and musts and oughts and commandments and all of that. And some of you may have that kind of inheritance. That was probably my inheritance a little bit. And it's dry and crushing and just reinforces the shame and guilt when you mess up. I think the flip side of the coin is what I might call license, where it's sort of overstressing the loving relationship bit at the expense of the obedience bit. And there's variations of this, and they're more or less subtle. I heard one this week, and it went a bit like this. God loves me unconditionally. It doesn't matter what I do. He'll still love me just the same. True so far. The, by, the, by his bloodshed on the cross, he's forgiven me, so I'm free. True so far. And therefore, klaxon warning, here comes the heresy. And therefore, actually, it doesn't matter that much if I mess up. It doesn't matter that much if I don't do what he says. Because I know that he'll still forgive me and, you know, it'll be okay. Because I'm cool with God, right? And sometimes that's called Grace. Friends, I have to say, it is not grace. That is a gross distortion of the theory, or the, not the theory, of what grace is in the Bible. Grace does not mean that sin doesn't matter. In fact, I would say that that kind of thinking re- reveals, we've got to follow the logic here, haven't we, from, from Jesus, that Jesus' words here, they reveal that the person who says that doesn't really know or love him. Because if obedience is the measure of loving Jesus and obedience doesn't matter, that's not loving Jesus, is it? They belong together. But even as I say that, friends, again, there might be the spin which goes, oh, ouch, that's uncomfortable, whatever. Whoa, 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 let's redefine. Who's saying this? Jesus Christ is saying this. The most loving person who ever walked the planet. who who represents to us the heart of the Father in every dimension. Who is good in every way. So to begin to know him, which is where it starts, we're called to know him first, is to begin to encounter and experience that he's good, the good nature of God, that he's good. And therefore he can be trusted. 
And therefore, he can be loved. And therefore, everything that he says or communicates or instructs is good and loving by definition. And therefore, it's actually in my best interest to do everything that he might communicate to me. It's compelling, isn't it? Seen like that? If we start with the obedience bit, if we start with the rules bit, and we divorce it from the knowing bit, then we're going to get into trouble. But when the call first is to, I've got to get to know God. The most important, by the time I die, the most important thing is that I've got to get to know God because he set everything up and he's given me my purpose and my life and my identity and everything. And then the rest of it follows. Seen in that light, obedience to Jesus becomes the most precious, beautiful, important way that we can live our life. And it is part of the sure foundation. So think, and not just you younger ones, you know, even my age ones. What, is the, what does the house of the rest of your life look like? What are you building on? And is it building on that sure foundation, the foundation of his love, but a love that then, uh, as we receive it and as we respond to it back, looks like something, and Jesus says what it looks like is taking my word seriously. Because in the end, it's the best thing for you. You're not orphans. Orphans live in order to, or an orphan spirit lives in order to try to get love and approval and acceptance. He says it in this passage, no, no, your sons and daughters, they don't live for approval and acceptance, they live from it. You're already accepted and loved and secured in, in your relationship with God, so from that place, honor him, submit him. It's an unequal relationship. Father, father son, father, daughter is an unequal relationship. We're in a covenant, he draws us into covenant. Yes, he calls us friends, but it's an unequal covenant. He is still God. He is still Lord. He's still master. He never asked me. I don't know if he's ever asked you. Has God ever asked you for your, your opinion on something because he was in trouble? He didn't quite work. I'm really in trouble today. I don't know quite about this, that, and the other. What, Tim, what do you think? Can you help me out here? No, he's, he's God. He, he knows his stuff. He's still Lord. And the only appropriate response to that is, is my surrender. I'm not going to dwell on the other three things, but I'm going to throw out the headlines this really matters. God's calling of me is not really about me. Before the passage I've just read and in the succeeding chapters after I've just read, it's really obvious that these friends that Jesus has called, yes, he's reassuring them and he's equipping them, he's strengthening them, he's giving them courage. Why? Because they've got an assignment in the world. I, I, I'm the age that I am and I still fall for this as if the, this notion of calling is for me. Well, part of it's for me, I'm not denying that. Part of it's for a sense of purpose and fulfillment and so on. But God calls us for other people's benefit. God gives us assignment for others. Think Abraham, you'll bless lots of nations. Think Noah, build a boat. Why? For yourself? No, to save some things because it's important. Think Esther for a time set such as this. Take any Bible character you name that God has called and their calling was not primarily about them. It was for the benefit of others. We're not here for us. We've got to get over ourselves about that. Remember the planet, planets and sun and who's revolving around what? It's not all about me. Even calling, we've managed to make it individual. Why? Because it's the culture out there. It's all about destiny. Follow your dream. You can achieve anything you want. Garbage. Follow God's dream for you, sure. Find out what his assignments are, you sure. All of those people, assignment, they're for the sake of others. You're a, you're a parent, you're a 
a husband, you're a teacher, you're a prophetic person, you're a friend, you're an intercessor, you work in media, your calling is not for you, it's not really about you. Think about your relationship with your work in that way. Pete Hughes was saying, really compelling, uh, if you know Pete, uh, a while ago, he's saying so much of, of, of the sort of the messages that we go, our, our work is there for us to extract something of benefit for me. Living in the town, living in the city, he, he's in London, he's saying so many people want to take from the city for them to make their lives better. No, invest in the city. That's the calling of God's people. Invest in your role for the sake of others, whatever it is. It might not be perfect, it might not even be what you want to do, but it's where you're planted right now. Hills is talking compellingly about that. That's where you are right now. Don't go searching for the greener grass just so that, you know. Three, obedience really begins at the point of resistance. Obedience really begins at the point of resistance. It's a bit like real unity begins at the point of disagreement. You know that thing? If we all agree, then unity is not a problem. It's only when we disagree that unity becomes an issue. I think it's a little bit like that with obedience. And so there's lots of reassurance here in, in these chapters. Jesus says, there's going to be trouble. It's going to be hard. The path is narrow. If anybody gives you a message that, that, that following Jesus somehow is, is therefore to make your life easier, to sort of protect you from everything, nonsense. It's almost the opposite, he says. There's sacrifice involved, there's offering and, and so on. And so I find myself resistant to some of those things. Some of it's not straightforward. When we want to do something, then it doesn't really look like obedience, right? But when I'm slightly resistant, because oh, it's a bit uncomfortable. Some of you might know, at, at silly o'clock in the morning, twice a week, uh, I, ex- I, for some reason best known to myself, um, submit myself to the torture chamber that is the armory gym. And the torturer-in-chief, who's in the room, bounces around like Tigger, because he's like that at six o'clock in the morning. It's not six o'clock. Um, it, wielding his instruments of torture, and, and I suffer and crawl out a, a little while later. Um, He's actually pretty good at it, and I'm pretty bad at it. He doesn't get the best of me. But I just knew that uh, I needed, God was saying, I was saying, I wanted to do something that put myself in better shape. I needed, you know, exercise, all of that sort of stuff. It was really, really important. But it comes, to be honest, and Jamie, close your ears, I don't enjoy it. (laughs) He's really, really good at it. (laughs) But there's resistance on my part, quite a lot of it, if I'm really honest. But it's the right thing to do. I know that God's told me to do it, and actually I want to do it in my heart of hearts, and there are benefits to doing it. But I don't like it. I don't especially uh, enjoy it. But it is, uh, and I, I will feel, am feeling the benefits of it, and it, it, it is rewarding. And by the way, as a bonus benefit along the way, um, I've, I've had a dodgy shoulder for some time. Jamie's helping to make my, my shoulder stronger. The injury's still there, but actually I can serve at tennis for the first time in five years. So there's some sort of specific benefits along with the, the, the kind of general sense of this is hard, but it's the right thing to be doing. Going God's way is often hard. And it's rarely, friends, a question of the enormous yes to something absolutely horrific. It looks far more like a hundred daily yeses. Little yeses. That's the path of discipleship. A little yes to this. A little yes to this. I'm hearing his voice. A little yes to this. And and along the way, there's the odd amazing moment. There's the odd shoulder gets healed moment. But a thousand little yeses, daily yeses, is the path of obedience. A long obedience in the same direction, Dallas Willard calls it. could say so much more about that. But I'm trespassing on time. 
Last one, you can't obey God without God. You cannot obey God without God, says the passage. Um, Because it's hard. Surely God wouldn't lead me into something hard, would he? Hang on a minute. Who led Jesus into the desert? Do you know that story? He gets baptized. God says, you're my son. What happens next? He goes into the desert, faces all kinds of real difficult hardships. Who led him there? Answer, God did. The Father did. It says in the text, the Holy Spirit led him into the, into the desert. There are all kinds of hardships that God will actually lead us into. Sometimes we get them into them from our own bad decisions or the brokenness of the world, but sometimes he'll, he'll lead us into them. Why? Because he doesn't like us? No, because the, the, the testing ground is exactly that. It's the refining ground. It's the proving ground. It's, how, it's the fertile soil in which he can shape us and mold us And if we you know, grapple. And sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed, but that's where it happens. Do we do all of that alone? Did Jesus do all of that alone? Does anybody go through those hardships alone? No. I will send you the Holy Spirit, says Jesus here. So if we're thinking nightmare, we're thinking this is way too much. Tim, this is impossible. This is such a, you know, wow, the bar is so high. Well, right, okay, the bar is high, and Jesus makes no um, compromise for that. He doesn't lower the bar just to make us feel better about ourselves. What he says is, there's power, there's power for this. There's power from heaven for this. There's an enabler. There's a counselor. There's an advocate. All the names of the Holy Spirit that he uses. I remember a, a woman who used to be part of this church. Who Her life just collapsed. Everything went wrong. Her husband left her. Best friend died. She was made redundant. She had two small kids. It was a nightmare. And, and just getting through the day was really, really hard. She said, at the end of the day, I would picture Jesus as the, count, the Holy Spirit as the counselor sitting at the end of my bed, and I would just pour out my stuff to him. And we'd have this kind of conversation, and she'd have a sense of what he was saying back to her, the beautiful counselor. And he was the enabler, and he gave her what she needed to keep going, to keep treading the narrow path of following Jesus, rather than just taking any of the escape routes which looked more attractive. There are always escape routes that look more attractive than the way of Jesus, always. But they're the broad way and they lead to destruction. The Holy Spirit is that gift to us, to enable us. Can't do God's stuff without, without God. Last bit of scripture, because I love it. Uh, even when it looks odd, by the way. Hosea, marry a prostitute. That's not easy. God told him to do it. Noah, build a boat in the middle of the desert. It'll take you 10 years. People will laugh at you. Peter, you're an experienced fisherman. You've been doing fishing for a long, long time. You haven't caught anything. Interesting. Try that side. Really? Do you remember what he says? It's one of my most, encapsulates everything I've been saying. Because you say, I will. Inside, he's probably thinking, really? (laughs) Really? I've been fishing all night. Are Are you serious? But... Because you say, because you say, I will. I wonder if that might be our, I was going to say mantra, wrong religion, you know what I mean? (laughs) Motto, our verse. Because you say, I will. That's Holy Spirit sort of dove on the shoulder to whom we're sensitive, don't want to do anything that will upset or enable him to fly off I'm sensitive to the Lord enable us to be sensitive to your voice and because you say I will even if I'm not sure I will I'll go your way we'll have to give an account one day by the way friends we have to give an account for all of those choices loving Jesus looks like obeying Jesus 
God's calling of me is not really about me. Obedience begins at the point of resistance. But praise God, he's given us his spirit. Because without God, we can't obey God. Okay, let's stand. Let's stand. Let's stand together.